Salut papa. Joyeux Noël. Hey everybody, welcome to Hope and Merry Christmas. Yeah, I know. Nobody wants to say Merry. It's, that was two weeks ago. We're moving on. Uh, last week was what? Uh, New Year's Day. And on Tuesday, so January 3rd, uh, Tuesday's a big meeting day here at Hope. I was driving down to West Des Moines for meetings that I had down there, and I was listening to the Murph and Andy radio show as I was driving, and they were talking about, you know, when is it no longer appropriate to say Happy New Year to people? And they thought, maybe on Wednesday, that would be the last time. And so if it's too late to say Happy New Year, it's certainly too late to say Merry Christmas, unless, of course, you're at church. And we are, and we've got a church calendar that's just a little bit different than the regular calendar. Uh, both calendars, December 25th is Christmas Day, but in the church calendar, Christmas Day begins the season of Christmas, the 12 days of Christmas. So Christmas really is just winding down. And I don't know about you, I'm having a little bit of a hard time letting go of Christmas this year. We got the tree down, we got the decorations down, we stopped listening to Christmas music, but I'm still watching Hallmark movies. Uh, Wednesday night, I was flipping through the channels and there was this movie about a ballerina and a professional hockey player who had uh, to rehabilitate his ankle and the ballerina was gonna help him uh, do that. And in the middle of it, they fall in love. I couldn't believe it. And at the very end, they kissed. It was unbelievable. Anyway, uh, I love Christmas. One of the things I love to do at Christmas, I love to uh, get on YouTube and you can search for and find hours worth of Christmas commercials from all around the world. Great Britain, every business in Great Britain puts out like a three to five minute Christmas miniature video that's super sentimental and sweet and absolutely manipulative to try to get you to buy their products. And so uh, the video that we just watched is a French Christmas commercial, a French cell phone company. And I wanted to start my message this weekend with that video, not so that you will buy a French cell phone, but I wanted to start it because of the song that was playing in the background. Come and get your love. Come and get your love. A father and a son over the years singing and dancing to this song. Come and get your love. At the end of worship today, we're going to extend a couple of invitations to you to come and get God's love for you. First, we'll invite you to the Lord's table. We'll celebrate communion together. And when we eat the bread and we drink from the cup of communion, we will be reminded of how great our Heavenly Father's love for us is and how perfectly on display God's love for us is through the life, death, and resurrection of God's Son, Jesus. And then the other thing we're going to do today, the second invitation for all of you, is to come to the waters of baptism to be baptized or to renew your baptism if you've been baptized before, and to let the waters of baptism just wash over you and give you a new start, a, a fresh start, a new life, a life full of grace. 
So that's where we're going. This invitation to come and get God's love for you. Our, our theme for the whole year, 2023, it's a year of the Bible. And we're going to read the whole Holy Bible in a year together. Now, my hope is some of you are here and you are brand new. Your first time at Hope, so first time you're hearing about the whole Holy Bible in a year. We're already a week into it, and maybe you're thinking, well, maybe I'll just show up next January then. No. Uh, and some of you are longtime hopesters, and maybe it's the first time you're hearing about it because you've been having a great holiday season, and you've been gone traveling with family, whatever, uh, and you haven't started. Whether you've started, whether you've caught up, it doesn't matter. I, we want to extend this invitation to everybody. And the reality is, uh, if you have not started, actually you did. Because the Bible reading today that you just heard here at church was the Bible reading for today. So you already did your Bible reading for today, and now you're only like six days behind. So here we go. It's going to be great. Uh, all sorts of tools for you to help you do this. We've got a bookmark that lists the readings for every week of the year. Uh, we have a Hope app. You might want to download the Hope app. If you do, you're just a couple clicks away from the daily readings. You're a couple clicks away from the podcast, the audio of the sermons that get preached here at Hope Ankeny, and a couple clips away from hopeonline.tv, where you can watch the uh, videos of sermons from the West Des Moines campus. On the Hope app, there's also volunteer opportunities if you want to serve on uh, the, I don't know, whatever teams, the public safety team, uh, if you want to serve on Hope Kids, whatever it might be, you can find those volunteer opportunities there. So I'd encourage you to download the Hope app. Here's how I've been doing the readings this week. And I'm not suggesting this is how you should do it. I'm just trying to illustrate that everybody does it a little bit differently. So find whatever it is that works for you. On my phone for years, the app that I've used, the Bible app, is called YouVersion. And on the YouVersion app, what I like about it, I can go to whatever the reading is, and there's a button I can push, and a narrator will read it for me. So I can listen to it being read. I like to actually have my Bible open so I can follow along on the paper, on the pages, while I'm listening to it being read from my phone. So that's just how much it takes for me to stay focused, I guess. But everybody's a little different, so find whatever works for you. It takes about 20 minutes a day. Sundays are really short and simple, but the rest of the week it's about 20 minutes a day, and we'll read through the whole Bible together. If you didn't get a chance to listen to Eli's sermon last week when we kicked this off, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it. Uh, Eli spent a lot of time talking about wisdom, and that's where I want to start today. We're not asking you to read through the Bible cover to cover in the next year so that we can get a bunch of information in your head, so that you'll be able to win a, a Bible trivia contest next January. That, that's not why we're, you're going to get a bunch of information in your head, but that's not the point. That's not the goal. The goal is to grow in wisdom. And we're absolutely convinced if we engage with God's word on a daily basis, we're going to be much wiser as individuals, we're going to be much wiser as a congregation next January than we are today. Anybody notice there seems to be, I don't know, wisdom is in short supply these days? Uh, we have all kinds of information. More information available to us today than ever before in the history of humanity. More information than we could possibly get through in a, in a course of a lifetime. The question is, all of this information, is it transforming us? It's informing us, but is it transforming us? Is it transforming the way we think, the way we act? Is it transforming our beliefs? Is it transforming our lives in good ways, in God-honoring ways, in healthy ways? Is all of this information 
transforming the way we love God and love our neighbor. And I think if we were to be honest, we would have to say a whole lot of informing going on, but not enough transforming, not enough wisdom. Uh, if you are new, one of the things you should know about me, it'd be good for you to know, I'm a, I love sports, huge sports fan. Uh, Iowa Hawkeyes, but I only uh, cheer for the Cyclones to lose when they're playing the Hawks. Right? Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm trying to get on the Cyclone bandwagon. I tweeted about it. Like, I got more likes about a tweet about Cyclone basketball than anything I ever tweet about the Bible. Anyway, um, I love the Cyclones too. And a lot of them, uh, coaches and players, are a part of our congregation. So go get them. Uh, I love my NFL team is the Kansas City Chiefs. And so on Monday, there was a lot of college football bowl games happening. My brother came over and we watched college football. He left after the Rose Bowl, and then it was time for Monday night football, which is a really important game for Chiefs fans because the Chiefs and the Bills and the Bengals are trying to get the number one seed in the AFC, which means you get a bye, which means you get to play all your games at home. It's an easier road to the Super Bowl if you're the number one seed. So the Monday night game started, and my hope was for the Bills to lose. Did you hear what I just said? My hope, I sat down to watch a game, and my hope was for one team to lose. My hope was not, oh, I hope I get to see a great game. I hope, I can't, I'm so grateful that I get to see these professional athletes, the top, what, 0.001% of athletes in the world per performing at the highest level. How lucky am I that I get to see that? My hope was not, I hope that everybody makes it through the game without any injury. My hope was that the Bills would lose, because I'm a fan, which is short for fanatic, and fanatics are often foolish, and that was me on Monday night. Game started. About 10 minutes into the game, uh, the Bengals completed a pass to their wide receiver, T. Higgins. He gets tackled by DeMar Hamlin of the Buffalo Bills. They get up from the tackle, and almost immediately, as soon as they are standing back up, DeMar Hamlin uh, collapsed, and we would find out later he had suffered a cardiac arrest. And it took the medical professionals and the training staff life-saving measures to get his heart beating again, uh, to get the breath of life back into his lungs and uh, get him into the ambulance and ultimately to a hospital. And all week long, the sports world, and I think it's even gotten bigger than the sports world over the course of this week, people have been watching and waiting and hoping for the best and fearing the worst as the news, like, it was really slowly trickling out. How is he doing? Now, in the last 24 hours, it's been a lot of really good news. And, and the word that I've been hearing more than any other word is the word miraculous. It's miraculous how well DeMar Hamlin is doing. And we rejoice. We praise God for that. We praise God for the medical staff who were there and were able to do what they did to, to save this young man's life. The news is pretty good. The outcome is pretty good today. He was tweeting yesterday, thanks for all the prayers, keep praying. I want you to rewind to Monday night, those of you who are watching it, or when you first heard about it. I've watched a lot of games in my life. I've never seen anything like that. The players were sobbing on the field, crying and hugging each other. I felt kind of sick to my stomach. The announcers didn't know what to do. They said, we'll go to a commercial break, which is what they always do when there's an injury. But then they come back from the commercial break and they say, we don't really have anything to say, so we're going to go to commercial again. It was eerie. It was scary. 
There was something dark about it. But even in the midst of everything that, that seemed so bad and so dark, there was a light trying to shine through. At one point, the cameras captured this image. The entire Buffalo Bills team, on their knees, players, coaches, support staff, heads bowed, praying, crying out for God to help, to make sure that their teammate would be well. If you look in the stands, you can see the fans, many of them in a posture of prayer. Fans of the Bills and the Bengals, hands clasped, praying for what was happening on the field. It was almost like in that moment, everyone on the field, everyone in the stands, even people at home in their living rooms watching this, all of a sudden we gained some wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the foundation or the beginning of wisdom, the scriptures declare. Teach us to number our days. Teach us to count our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom, the psalm writer says. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus is telling a story trying to illustrate, here's the wise way to live, here's a foolish way to live. And in Jesus' story in Luke chapter 12, he says, it is foolish to go through your life ignoring the reality of your death. We don't like to talk about death. We don't like to think about death. Death is painful. Death is scary. And Jesus says it's foolish not to think about it. Wisdom is to spend a significant amount of time in your life reflecting on your mortality and coming to a place where, where you have an understanding. What do you actually believe? And so at various moments in our life, we get these come-to-Jesus moments where something happens in somebody else's life or something happens in your life that ignites a divine spark and you are reminded, I've been created by God in the image of God. And this spark, this divine spark is inside every single one of us, but we forget it or we live so foolishly that we sometimes snuff it out and then something happens like what happened on Monday or something happens like what has happened in the lives of so many people on this congregation recently. Horrible, scary diagnoses for people who are far too young. Deaths. People from every kind of age and demographic just suddenly and tragically and awful. And in these moments when we don't know what to do, the prophet Isaiah reminds us of the promise of God. This is Isaiah 33, verse 6. It's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. In that day, the Lord will be your sure foundation, providing a rich store of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord will be your treasure. When we have these come-to-Jesus moments in our lives, the promise of God is, I will save you. I will give you wisdom. I will give you the kind of knowledge that will inform the way you live your life, that it will transform the way you live your life, that you will know what is the right way, the best way to live out the days that we get on this earth. When we do not know what to do, what do we do? When we feel lost and scared and hopeless, when things are dark, where do we turn? And scriptures tell us, Wise people turn to God, because nothing less will do. So on Tuesday, all the sports talk radio and sports talk TV, they're, they're talking about what happened on Monday night. 
Uh, one of the shows on ESPN is a show called uh, NFL Live. I think there's three people who host that show. One of them is a former quarterback. His name is Dan Orlovsky. And as they're, here's what happened. How did it happen? Uh, where do we go from here? As they're talking through all this toward the end of the show, Dan Orlovsky does something very wise. Take a look. Football gave me everything. You know, and I think even through the midst of absolute tragedy last night, I think you saw some of the beauty of football mm -hmm. as well, that it's brought us all here together. Um, you know, like, this is a little bit different. I heard, I've heard it all day, like thoughts and prayers. And you just heard Scherf and Jonathan Allen say, like, all we can do is pray for him. And I've heard the Buffalo Bills organization say that like, we believe in prayer. And maybe this is not the right thing to do, but I want to, it's just on my heart that I want to pray for it is. DeMar Hamlin right, right, right now. Um, I'm going to do it out loud. I'm going to close my eyes. I'm going to bow my head, and I'm just going to pray for him. Um, God, we come to you in these moments that we don't understand, that are hard, uh, because we believe that your God and coming to you and praying to you um, has impact. We're, we're sad, we're angry, um, and we want answers, but some things are unanswerable. We just want to pray, truly come to you and pray for strength for Damar, for healing for Damar, for comfort for Damar, to be with his family, to give them peace, if we didn't believe that prayer didn't work, we wouldn't ask this of you, God. Um, I believe in prayer. We believe in prayer. We lift up DeMar Hamlin's name in your name. Amen. 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 It's beautiful. Respectfully. We will continue to cover this story. We'll continue to bring you all the updates that we have. And as usual, we'll see you tomorrow on NFL Live. I'll just reiterate how secondary football is in all of this. We are thinking and praying, as you've seen here, for DeMar Hamlin and his family. All we can do is pray, as though prayer is a last resort. When we've done everything that we can do, now we'll turn to God. All we can do is pray. Prayer is not a last resort. Prayer should be, prayer should be our first instinct. And I think one of the things that I've observed happening over this week is a lot of people have a renewed belief in the power of prayer. Because we prayed and we prayed and we prayed and we got the outcome that we prayed for. At least, that's what it seems like, so we're going to keep on praying for that. Of course, that also leads to questions because there are plenty of people in this room who have prayed and prayed and prayed for an outcome and did not get the outcome that they were praying for. What do we do? Pray anyway. Pray anyway. Pray. Let God know your heart. Let God know what you want. And trust that God's wisdom is above our wisdom. The wise writer of the book of Ecclesiastes says God has planted eternity in the human heart. God has planted eternity in the human heart. There's something inside every single one of us that knows this is not our everlasting home. I was listening to my two favorite national sports talk radio hosts on Tuesday, and they both were crying as they were reflecting on Monday night. One of them, he was losing his composure. It wasn't time for a commercial, but he said, we got to go to commercial. we got to go to break. We need to pray. God has planted eternity in the human heart, and over the course of our lives, we get these come-to-Jesus moments, we get these times where God, in God's own unique way, with every single one of us, in God's own unique timing, God is waking us up, 
And God is opening our eyes. And God is helping us see things that for whatever reason we haven't seen up to that point. And God is inviting us to trust him, to believe him, to have faith in him. Our Bible reading for this first week of the year has been the beginning of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. And when I look at the beginning of the Old Testament, as I'm reading through those early chapters of Genesis, how am I supposed to be thinking about this? What's the wise thing that I'm supposed to be learning from all of this information? It seems to me, uh, what's been most helpful to me is thinking about it in terms of this cycle. Order, disorder, reorder. Everybody say that with me. Order, disorder, reorder. At Christmas Eve services, I reminded us, scriptures begin in darkness. Uh, the earth is void, it's formless, it's empty, and everything is dark, and then God goes to work putting everything into order. You read through Genesis 1 and 2, and it's this very orderly account of the creation of the heavens and the earth. You get to chapter 3, and Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit. Chapter 4, Cain kills his brother Abel. By the time you get to chapter 6, things are pretty bad. We, we get this sobering verse that's on the screen. Read this out loud with me. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. We've got a lot of wickedness and evil in our world. There's a lot in our world that is not good, that's bad, and, and part of the work of the church, the body of Christ, is to be uh, this force for good, for change, for transformation, for redemption. But as bad and wicked and evil as a lot of things are, it's not this bad, is it? Everything that they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil? That's pretty bad. It's out of order. And so God says it's time for some reordering. Here comes the flood, a deluge of water that God uses as a way of saying, let's start again. A flood of water that God says, this is a way for reordering this chaotic mess and everything that's gone wrong. We're going to use this flood of water to say, let's start over. Let's give a second chance to civilization. Now, this reordering work that God does through the flood, it does not last very long. You should really read your Bible. This is fascinating stuff. Do you remember what one of the first things that Noah does when he gets off the ark? He plants a vineyard, and he grows some grapes, and he makes some wine, and he gets plastered. That's the Hebrew translation. He gets plastered. But he does, and then it just kind of spirals downhill from there. That's in chapter 9. In chapter 11 of Genesis, we read about the Tower of Babel. And Babel is a word that means confusion. Confusion, chaos, disorder. And so there's this cycle that we see through the first 11, 12, and it keeps going. Order, disorder, reorder, all through the book of Genesis. As you keep reading through the Old Testament, you're going to see primarily as we follow the history of the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, the book of Judges is like, chapter after chapter after chapter of order, disorder, reorder. Get to Genesis chapter 12, and we're introduced to Abram. God changes his name to Abraham. And, and this is a glimpse, a hint of God's ultimate plan of reordering all things. God says, all the families on earth will be blessed through you, Abraham. When things get out of order, when the world gets so awful and ugly and messy and, and chaotic, and when our own lives and our own thoughts and our own behaviors 
are out of whack, when, when we are living foolishly and God wants to get us on the path to wisdom, what's God's plan for doing that? And Matthew connects the dots. All the families on earth will be blessed through you, God says to Abraham, in the beginning. And then in the beginning of the New Testament, the very first verse, Matthew in his gospel, his story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he says, this is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. God's plan for blessing all the families on earth always has been from the very beginning, Jesus Christ, an ancestor of Abraham. You keep reading through Matthew chapter 1, the angel appears to Joseph, uh, tells Joseph Mary is going to give birth to a son, you're to name him Jesus. You're to name him Yeshua, which means the Lord saves. For Jesus will save his people from their sins. This is God's redeeming, reordering work, salvation, saving us from our sins. So let's talk about sin for a little bit. In the New Testament, the word for sin often carries with it this idea of there's a target that we're aiming for. And uh, sometimes we miss the mark. That, that's our sin. There's a way of life that uh, we want to live. That we've got a five-year plan or a 10-year plan, and if everything goes according to plan, we'll hit that target, right? Most of the time when I talk to people in church, it's because things aren't going according to plan for all kinds of reasons. Some of it is your sin. Some of it is the way you've been sinned against. But often we miss the mark. We fall short of the standard that God has for us. We fall short of the standard we set for ourselves. We sin. Uh, in the Old Testament, the place we point to, where does sin enter the biblical account? We point to Genesis chapter 3. In, in my Bible, there's a, a subtitle at the beginning of Genesis 3. It says, the man and the woman sin. The man and the woman sin. But read through Genesis 3. Uh, seriously, go home and do this. Read through Genesis 3. Guess what word does not show up in Genesis 3? Sin. The writer of the book of Genesis does not say Adam and Eve sinned when they ate the forbidden fruit. Instead, the writer of the book of Genesis tells us how Adam and Eve felt when they ate the forbidden fruit, when they missed the mark. Suddenly, they felt shame. Let's give you a, a moment to think about. When's the last time in your life you felt shame? Something that you did, and immediately, as soon as you did it, you got that burning, gross sensation in the pit of your stomach, and maybe just this flash of heat went up the base of your spine to the back of your neck, and the hairs on your neck kind of stood out on their end, and, and it just didn't feel good at all because you knew you had messed up. There, you couldn't point the finger at anybody else. You couldn't blame anybody else. You're the one that did it. And you get that feeling of shame. Let's talk about shame for just a second. So guilt is just kind of transactional, right? Guilt simply means you did it. You did something wrong. You broke the law. Shame is the, the feeling that we get that, oh, boy, there's something about me that is wrong because I did something that's wrong. And the Bible talks about there is a godly shame a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. So shame, a healthy shame, is the way the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin so that we should know, I shouldn't do that again. I shouldn't say that again. And then there's hope. A healthy, a healthy shame has hope that the shame can be washed away. 
I can be forgiven. There's this unhealthy shame that's rampant in our culture where people feel it moment after moment after moment after moment of their life, this, this feeling that there's something flawed with me, that, that I am broken and there's no hope for repair. There's no hope for forgiveness. There's no hope for restoration. And that's an unhealthy shame. It does not come from the Lord. We're talking here about a healthy shame that is the Holy Spirit convicting us of our sin. And when we feel that, whatever it feels like to you, whatever that experience, that feeling of shame is, I think you could say the feeling is a feeling of being dirty and unclean on the inside. Look at the life of King David for a second. In, in King David's life, we see this uh, cycle of order, disorder, and reorder. And in the disorder stage in David's life, we see sin and we see shame. Let's just walk through this really quickly. So uh, at the beginning of David's life, everything's pretty much going according to plan. Uh, he is a faithful, obedient lad. He has tremendous faith in God. It's his faith in God that allows him to stand up against the giant Goliath. Uh, it's his faith in God that uh, causes him to be anointed the king. He's a man after God's own heart. He becomes a national hero. But eventually, his life gets disordered. Um, you could talk about David's sin in specifics. I want to talk about it sort of in generalities, in broad sweeping terms. What, what was David's sin? And his sin was an abuse of power. He's the king. He's a national hero. He's beloved. And this starts to go to his head. And he becomes convinced at some point in his life, I can do whatever I want. No consequences. And so he sees something that he wants, and he orchestrates a plan to get what he wants. Never mind that that means he's going to have to orchestrate the death of the woman that he wants. He sends Uriah to the front lines of the battlefield, or Uriah who is married to the woman that he wants. David knows full well Uriah is going to be killed there. Never mind, David's not going to ask for consent from Bathsheba before he takes what he wants. He abuses his power. And what the scriptures tell us is through this disordering in his life, David is not feeling any shame about his behavior, about his actions, about his sin. He thinks it's okay. I'm the king, I can do whatever I want. So God sends a prophet by the name of Nathan to confront David on his sin, and, and Nathan does it in a very artful way. He tells a story about a man who's doing some things that make David angry. And as Nathan tells the story, David's getting angrier and angrier and angrier at this man and what this man is doing. And finally, Nathan says to David, you are that man. And suddenly David felt shame. Same way that Adam and Eve felt shame when they bit into that forbidden fruit. The same way that you and I feel shame at the things that we do and the things that we say that cause hurt to the people that we don't want to hurt that lead to disconnection from the people that we want to be connected to. In the midst of this sin, this disorder in his life, this experience of shame, David writes about it. And it gets recorded in Psalm 51. And let's read this out loud together. Read it with me. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. In his sin, in his shame, David feels dirty. 
He feels unclean. And he knows the only thing that can make it better would be the grace and the mercy of God. So he hits his knees and he cries out in the same way that you and I hit our knees and we cry out to God at various points in our life when we realize that we've blown it, that we've made a mess. Purify my heart, O God. Cleanse me. Wash me. One of my favorite stories from my time here at Hope, there was a guy who's a part of our church for quite a long time, and uh, he's moved away to another town now. But um, I got to know him when his marriage was uh, struggling. Uh, marriage is struggle, right? We, we have a marriage class that's starting next week, and we've got a lot of people signed up for it already, but there's more room uh, for people to sign up for the marriage course. And it, whether you're struggling, whether things are going great, it's always the right time to get more tools to add to your toolbox. Because remember the vows, in good times and in bad, and, and both of those happen in every marriage. So get some more tools to help you uh, make your way through this. This particular marriage ended in divorce, and when it did, uh, this man stopped coming to church. Wasn't going to church anywhere. And after a couple of years, he finally got to a place where he thought, I really need to get back. It would be good for me. I know it would be good for me to go back to church. So one Sunday morning, he came and he parked right out front there in the parking lot. And he just stayed in his car. And people came and parked around him and they got out of their cars and walked in, but he didn't get out of his car. And about 15 minutes after worship started, he started his car and drove home. Because he was like, I just can't. There's, he felt some sort of burden, some sort of weight, some sort of shame around his sin that made him feel like, I'm not welcome in church. I can't. There's not a place for me. But all week long, he kept feeling that nudge inside him to say, you know, it would be good for you. You know, you won't regret it. Just go to church. So the next Sunday, the second Sunday, parked out front, got out of his car, walked through the front doors here, and just kept walking. Got to the staircase, went down the stairs, went out the lower level door, walked around the church back to his car, and drove home. But again, that next week, it just kept stirring inside him. It's time. I got to do it. So that third Sunday, he parked, got out of the car, came through the front doors, and he made his way to the very back row of the worship center. And later, as he was telling me this story, he said, Scott, as I'm sitting there in the worship center and the music is playing and the scripture's being read and the gospel of Jesus is being proclaimed, I felt the presence of God washing over me and washing away the stain of my sin and the stain of my shame. And I knew, I've, I believed in God, but I knew in a different way, a deeper way in that moment that God is real, that God loves me, and that I belonged. And so that's the question that I have for you today. What do you believe? Do you believe there's a place for you here at Hope? Do you believe you belong here at Hope? And even more importantly than that, do you believe you belong to the family of God? No matter how messed up your past might be, no matter how filled with doubt you are at different times in your life, no matter how angry you get at God sometimes when you're praying for an outcome that you don't get, no matter what guilt or shame or burden you carry with you into worship today, do you believe there is a God and that God loves you? Because if you believe that, it's dinner time. Come and get it, church.
Now don't rush the stage all at once. I'll give you a little instructions. If you believe that God loves you, one of the places that we remember this love more than any other place is at the Lord's table. The night he was betrayed, Jesus was sharing a meal with his closest friends. He took some bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. He said, take and eat. This is my body given for you. Eat this and remember how much I love you when you eat it. Later in the meal, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you and for all people for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink this and remember my love for you when you drink it. Let's stand and let's pray together the prayer Jesus taught his followers to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.